listening to Musically Speaking on 91.9 KVCR. My name is Margaret Worsley, and I'm Associate Professor of Music at San Bernardino Valley College, chatting today with Bill Scholl, historian, musician, and president of the Period Piano Collection in Redlands. Hi, Bill. Thanks so much for schlepping over to the KVCR studio today. Thank you, Maggie. I'd love to start with a little of your backstory. Where are you originally from? Southern California, San Gabriel Valley. Grew up in Covina and uh, studied the piano from teachers in that area and then beyond. Your life clearly revolves around the piano. Has the piano always been a part of your life? Do you come from a musical family or a family of musicians? My parents were untrained but talented. They sang together in their younger years. I barely remember it, but got to play for them a little bit when I was becoming a pianist. Um, But uh, uh, my older brother was my biggest family influence. Because he was uh, impacted severely as as a youth by asthma, he never pursued his music instrument dreams. But he became a kind of an amateur musicologist early on. Uh, In other words, he listened to music all the time. And that profoundly impacted my love of music. So by eight years old, I had been screwing around enough at the piano that my parents realized I had to be getting lessons. And so there's nothing prodigy about me. But by my teen years, I was aspiring to be a concert pianist. Wow, that is really awesome. So how did you end up here in the Inland Empire? So I, I did a degree at what we now call La Sierra University, but was called Loma Linda University. That degree followed an impulse to go into the ministry. Wow. And uh, so I did that degree, and I did one year after that. I came, came back to the area after that uh, one year of, of service to, to actually do grad school in religion so that I could teach. But by that time, I had also had about six, seven years of exposure to piano technology, something that had interested me and driven me through high school and college and apprenticeships and so on. And I never left it. 42 years later, I'm still here working on pianos. (laughs) That is so fabulous. You really are a Renaissance man. And we'll talk more about some of your other skills in a moment. But to the piano rescue side of your skill set, what do you love about fixing up old pianos? Well, fixing up old pianos drives most piano technicians crazy, so (laughs) most of them try to avoid it and stick with tuning and field repair and making people happy out there. Mm -hmm. Um, A combination of things, but from the beginning, it might be just that I inherited my dad's genes. Dad was a mechanic. Mm. He had musical abilities, but he never developed those. I had musical abilities that I developed through private study with great teachers and then finally later in my 40s uh, as in a Master of Music a Vocal Performance from U of R. But I, I didn't realize how much I was driven to be involved in things that we might call mechanical. And essentially, pianos are mechanical objects that require mechanical aptitude and then special training. Well, I kept getting that training. I couldn't kind of help myself all the way from high school and college. So, you know, by the time I actually got my what we call registered piano technician certification in 1982, um, I was well along. I was working full time had a rebuilding shop already, and couldn't help myself. Pianos just sucked me in, and they still do. I can't help it. (laughs) That is so great. Have you always been history-oriented, or did that perspective evolve as you started working on these ancient I've never had formal training in in history or doing history. 
I would have. That would be on my top five of interest subjects mm-hmm. um, because I scored in the 90s percentile in American history, for example. I got to take the issues in, a, in American history in college. So that just kind of evidences that I love history. I still love history and avocationally do history in that area um, not not American history, I'm sorry, but in the other area of my life, which is still an interest in church life and ministry. So I actually do work in that area doing some history, but it's all avocational and uh, collegial, you might say. Uh, but the business of piano history is just endlessly fascinating. So it has resulted in uh, presentations for the American Musical Instruments Society, the Society of professionals who study history and especially music and musical instruments. That's the emphasis of AMIS, we call it. Um, and I continue to research and write. I'm writing a book on the history of not the Steinway Piano Company, but the Steinway Pianos in their first 50 years, for example. Wonderful. And I do want to ask you more about that book in just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you founded the Period Piano Center in 2001 and later the Period Piano Collection. What is the Period Piano Center and what is the Period Piano Collection? There are two names for the same thing. Uh, the first name was established in, in the first 10, 11 years. Period Piano Ke- Collection came about because of chicanery by a former board member. So, so we needed to actually move move along. So we are Period Piano Center, uh, AKA, and we are Period Piano Collection in terms of our actual registry with the state of California. Gotcha. So can the general public and teachers arrange tours with you of the facility? Absolutely. You, you may contact us anytime by appointment. You can reach us by phone at the phone number listed on the website, 909-796-4226. Or you can actually go to our website, which is periodpiano.org. And how much does that cost and what are your uh, general hours? A tour is an individual ticket of $50. But if you have four or more in the tour, it's $30 per person. Okay. And we, w- we will do a group up to 20. Wow. That's a deal. A comfortable group would be 10 or 12. Okay. Um, I'd like to just take a moment to reintroduce our guest, Bill Schull. Bill restores pianos and is the president of the Period Piano Collection in Redlands. Bill, you gave me a tour last week. Um, and it was absolutely incredible. We started off with a pre-piano keyboard, the clavichord, and walked through just centuries of music. And I loved that you could sit down at any instrument and say, oh, this piano was from the time of Brahms. When he wrote his rhapsodies, they would have sounded like this, or Beethoven, or Ravel. It was so fun. Um, Now, most piano technicians I know are not performers, but you're both a piano rebuilder and an accomplished accompanist. How did that happen? It's surprising how many piano technicians across the country, if you were to look across the country, actually have advanced degrees, including advanced degrees in piano performance or musical instrument performance. Mm. Um, But you're right. uh, Most of us are mechanics who do repair. Um, so, So the fascination for period piano performance, that that grew over my whole life as an adult. Uh, as a piano technician back in 1990 at Cal State San Bernardino, professor, history, music history professor Art Moorfield uh, introduced me to the value of the period instrument by his 
annual class that he would always include uh, one day in his history class and also one day in his music appreciation class, the general studies class, mm -hmm. where he actually talked about the harpsichord and, and, and the clavichord. And we had what we call revival area, era pia pianos and harpsichords, not pianos, but harpsichords and clavichords there. Mm -hmm. So I would pull the actions out and he'd go and talk about those things. Well, that helped to spark my interest. But, of course, one couldn't help to, to notice that every once in a while, the old radio station KFEC would broadcast some of the early fortepianists in America. And so slowly but surely, I just got drawn into it until 20 years ago, as I was doing my master's degree at the University of Redlands in vocal performance, my musicology professor and I bonded over historic pianos. Oh, cool. I was singing say, Franz Liszt's leader, melody, and, and so on, and realizing that Liszt actually was thinking about this music as he was some of the piano works I'd learned 20 years before with an instrument that we now would call a period instrument, mm. the Erard piano. Mm -hmm. The Erard piano was actually eventually the dominant instrument in the continent in Europe. And it was very important. Even today now, it's the most important piano from the 19th century. So um, that, that began a fascination for, and it was actually my musicology professor, Phil Rayfelt, and his wife, Sally, who got us into our first Gerard in 2001. Bill, we have this garage sale, and you got to get over here right away. <laughs> and they were visiting a garage sale. And uh, we went and picked up this Erard vertical piano from the 1860s, which we have since used to travel with and perform with and so on. Since then, of course, we've acquired about 10 Erard grands and have several of them ready for performance. Very cool. So by vertical piano, you mean like up and down piano? Right. Okay. Many times they're called uprights. Uprights. Yes. Okay, cool. Um, and I had never heard of an Erard until I went to your center there, and it was such a beautiful sounding instrument. It was a lot lighter, um, almost, um, I mean, you used the word ethereal, but it just had this magical, very colorful quality to it and, and sounded indeed very, very French. Um, yes, so that was does. that was just amazing to listen to and to learn about. So you've mentioned it already of um, the writing of a book on Steinway. Um, as, and I, I think you've mentioned you, you consider yourself essentially a Steinway scholar. Um, why is Steinway so special or so important to America? A kind of fun story is that in 1851, the uh, Steinway uh, founder, Heinrich Engelhardt Steinbeck, mm -hmm. had just immigrated to the United States. He was building, you might say, pianos out of the house and uh, had a very unsuccessful operation, though he had maybe won a prize or two. Mm -hmm. And he moved his family, all but one very important member, to the United States. And in 1851, he attends this big cultural event in American history, which was Jenny Lind singing, sponsored by P.T. Barnum, in this amazing crystal auditorium or mm -hmm. building that emulated that of the uh, of, of London, right, mm -hmm. that we had built in New York. And uh, Jenny Lind transformed the society in many ways. For example, she impacted the role of women and their opportunities. But we, what is not thought of too much is that Henry Steinway, we call him, Papa Steinway, attended this concert and had not seen the piano that was on stage until he arrived. This was a modern, for the time, Chickering concert grand, which used cast iron instead of just some reinforced uh, metal uh, 
bars. That cast iron business was kind of revolutionary, and Europeans thought it was very bad for sound. It's said that Mr. Steinway held the program up by going up and examining this piano top, bottom, climbing <laughs> underneath, and so on. Within two years, he had started Steinway and Sons. And within six years, he had won a prize. He had begun to build the overstrung concert grand or the overstrung piano, the grand piano, never done yet with a grand piano until then. And because of the family's diverse abilities in business and piano making and so on, each of his sons contributed to the key roles in a piano factory and, and in terms of the business. So that within another few years, by the 60s, they had overtaken the leading American manufacturer, which was Chickering. And the rest is history. Wow, that is so interesting. So Steinway despite the German-sounding name, didn't have a business until they got to America. They, they had a small business, and and he handed it off to his son, Theodore, mm. um, C.F. Theodor Steinbeck. And he kept the old business going till 1865. Two of his brothers, and you remember what I said about the importance of the family members, mm -hmm. two of his brothers died by June of 1865, that year. And he was persuaded to come and take over the R&D. And the other son that was alive, William, became the president of Steinway. And this was the team that built the company we know today. William was an extraordinary president, a leader, CEO. Uh, and, and Heinrich Engelhardt's inventions are what in, arguably created the modern piano today. Awesome. That is just fascinating. So, where... And I said Heinrich Engelhardt, but I mean Theodore. Theodore. Theodore, the Theodore of course. Teddy. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, so where can we obtain a copy of this book? Well, I got to finish it first. Oh, You know, okay. when you're running a full-time uh, rebuilding shop, uh, store, field service, and trying to get period piano collection off the ground, the books takes the back burner. But it is coming along, and... Uh, uh, I have an editor I'm going to be visiting soon who will have a look at it. It's, it's incredible to look at the pianos themselves, and that's mm -hmm. not been done except for with one book by Roy Keel and David Kirkland, the, ed the, the person who did his editing and put it together. And we won't talk too much about that book except for that I must say that the only book, and this was endorsed by Steinway & Sons, that gives you good details, which has almost no text, Mm. but it has a lot of data, is uh, is the official guide to the Steinway Piano. Wow. I, well, I can't wait to read it. You'll have to keep us posted when it when it is indeed published. Did you do much traveling around for research on that book? Uh, that's a good question, Maggie. Uh, especially up until uh, not, a little less than a decade ago, I spent enormous amounts of time both documenting pianos and living in the archives of the Wagner Steinway Archive at the LaGuardia Community College, which is the primary archive that Steinway donated documents to, mm. but also the Smithsonian Institution, which is an extraordinary institution of service to researchers. Uh, and, and I lived in both places. I've many trips to both places, plus documenting pianos we've had to travel all over, mostly the East Coast, but sometimes uh, up and down the California coast, because many of these pianos are in those locations, and to Belgium. We found the single most important uh, innovative Steinway ever built, a prototype, in Goik, Belgium. Hmm. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I just can't imagine some of the concert halls and venues you've seen on, on those travels. It must have been just uh, amazing. Visiting musical instruments museums everywhere is one of the greatest treats. And of course, because we are building this, uh, this project, 
uh, of course, informative as well. And anyone who gets to Belgium has to visit the Brussels Musical Instrument Museum. It's, it's a breathtaking experience all the way from before you get into the building with this extraordinary uh, design, uh, kind of a metal structure, mm-hmm. um, to the pianos themselves, which are, of course, extraordinarily collected and presented. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, any excuse to go to Belgium will do. <laughs> Field trip. <laughs> yes. Um, evidently, like you mentioned, you also have a master's in vocal performance from the University of Redlands. So you've been singing this whole time, too. Um, where can people go to hear you sing? Well, singing is a tough venture because unlike the piano, which you can pretend to be pretty good at without practicing, <laughs> the voice doesn't let you do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are exceptions like Andy Williams who can just get up on the radio and sing mm-hmm. without warming up. Uh, but most of us who sing have to keep our instruments in shape. Mm-hmm. And since that's hard to do unless you're vocalizing a good half hour, 45 minutes a day, and you're never letting a day or two go by, you know, they have some pretty sad things to say about what happens after two or three days of not singing. Mm. And we won't repeat them now, but that actually <laughs> is what happens to me too. Uh, so so anytime I do sing, which is usually related to my service with the church, mm-hmm. then I have to spend a, a month preparing. Mm-hmm. And of course, Everybody who memorizes music has their strengths and weaknesses. I find my memory of music works, and I found this from my youth, that memorizing piano repertoire came relatively easily, Mm. but memorizing words is almost impossible. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which has been a downside for me, and you know that's why you're not not the only reason why you're not hearing me at all as a singer. But uh, of course, in church music, you usually use a score, and and so I've loved to. Uh, where you can hear me sing is is going to be not hearing me sing usually, but hearing me part part of All Saints Episcopal Church's choir on special days over in Riverside, with uh, their wonderful director Abe Favella. Uh, being parts of high days in in the church uh, church here. Nice. Well, I hope they give you some solos because just listening to now your voice then. now, I mean, you're you've got such an incredible voice. Just, I mean, it's a great radio voice too. That's thank you, Maggie. One thing I did do, and we're arguing about whether or not to get put up on Vimeo. Uh, we're we're we do have a few in-house recordings we've done mm-hmm. with our instruments, and one of the things I did, which I'm kind of proud of and kind of not because I didn't take it to the performance level uh, and memorize the words of this work is to sing Beethoven's On die Ferne Geliebte. And of course, in COVID, what a theme, to my distant beloved. Mm. You know, the, this whole idea that the one you love is is, is a, a, apart from you. Mm-hmm. And of course, not only was Beethoven's uh, On die Ferne Geliebte uh, a wonderful and beautiful set of songs, it was the first true song cycle. Oh, it's wow. the first so- song cycle, and that is the, the music is tied together and the thematic material is tied together so that you feel this connection of songs and at the same time they're the separate and distinct songs. But more importantly for us, I got to sing with, the, with one of the right instruments. So we have a video of my singing that instrument with my partner in business and at uh, Period Piano Collection, Catherine Lee, playing the piano. That's so wonderful. And I was just going to say, behind every great piano historian is a strong woman. So I can't let another question go by without acknowledging your lovely wife, Catherine. Uh, She helped coordinate our visit and our tour, and it's pretty evident she's the wind beneath your wings. How did you two meet? So we met each other uh, as a as a piano technician client over 30 years ago mm. because she had just arrived and was a student in, in the master's program in piano performance at the University of Redlands. And, and you know, we 
talked some, of course, at any, we, we were both in different marriages at the time. And, you know, we just got to know each other through the normal client uh, relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, she got pissed that I didn't answer her calls to tune her pianos after she moved to Hemet and became a facilitator of, uh, excuse me, she became a director of uh, facilities that take care of folks that are declining. Mm. And uh, that made, that was her career, and she became a fine manager. And now she's brought, since we were both, we discovered about six years ago, that we were both free. Mm. And it wasn't long before we, we, we got together. Yeah. And um, it, she helps a lot with the management side. Uh, she answers the phones. And she is a pianist. Mm. And she quickly understood the extraordinary experience that a piano has with the period instruments. But she has another side that she can contribute, which is to advocate for pianists who do not have a large hand in a large body. She will tell you stories, and I wish she was in the studio to tell you this story. <laughs> she will tell you stories of how her very fine uh, teacher in Taipei at the Methodist College there, mm-hmm. in this extraordinary conservatory-like program, how he wasn't going to teach her because she didn't have a strong enough set of shoulders, et cetera. And she had to go swimming to build up her muscular strength. Oh, my goodness. Now, the whole deal with having a body that works with a modern instrument is part of the package. Now, there are small people or people who don't have a robust body who still have that strength. I guess Yuja Wong would be a good example Mm -hmm. of someone who's slightly built but incredibly strong. But most small women and most men and most women don't have the strength that a largely built man does. And many of our pianos today, most modern pianos, require some muscularity. The period instrument frequently is far more friendly to a person who has smaller hands and a less robust musculature. Oh, it's just an extraordinary (laughs) discovery. If you watch a video of me playing with my fat fingers and (laughs) oversized body, not the least due to good meals. Uh, but if you if you watch me play, you wonder how I fit myself onto that slight, small keyboard. And sometimes I wonder too. It's just so much fun, I can't help it. But Catherine, and, and for people her size and with the smaller hands who can't reach much more than an octave or may not do better than an octave, that's the perfect instrument for them. Mm. More and more, I think, we should be promoting the opportunity to play on period instruments because it will open the world of art up for pianists who may not otherwise make a performance career of themselves. I love that. And it it reminds me of something you mentioned in the tour last week of um, the world was a different place. And we were referring to how quiet Mm -hmm. the instruments were that you were playing. But I it sounds like it's not just um, the volume of these instruments. It's also the um, action um, and the size of the instrument itself, which is dramatically different from what we're used to these and days. And I do hope we get to the part about the volume, but the playing mechanisms were really almost always very friendly. There is one exception, and that's Chopin's Playel. We all wonder why Chopin made a comment that he preferred the Playel over the Erard. He's made opposite comments too, but but he, for him to even think that the Playel action, Playel was a, another leading French piano from the 1830s, 40s, 50s, 60s, mm. and an incredibly wonderful sounding piano, perfect in Chopin's mind for his music. And uh, the actions were generally unfriendly. But other than that, all of the instruments of, of the 19, 18th and 19th centuries are so friendly to play. 
I hope, though, we also get to talk about why they're totally important. Well, let's talk about it now. Um, what did What did you want to say as far as volume and tone for some of the instruments? So you remember you have? we were talking about the Erard piano. Mm-hmm. The reason why the Erard piano distinguishes itself from what quickly became the modern piano of the 1860s, 1870s, and 1880s. I mean, it actually distinguished itself well into the early 20th century. At first, when it was developed, and it really hit the scene in its important shape by the 1830s. And so Chopin, Liszt, Mendelssohn, hmm. these all these composers all had Erards. Mendelssohn famously had two Erards, right, because he actually beat up the first one. Oh. <laughs> but but each of these, of these composers and many more preferred the Erard. And then later, the innovative Erard of the 1830s and 30s became kind of the old-fashioned Erard by the 1890s, but they stuck to their guns because of their unique tonal palette. The Erard piano had something to give because it's, most people won't, won't appreciate this, but I hope you begin to. Its tone decayed more quickly. Mm. It came from the fact that it was structured in a certain manner. You know, the soundboard had grain that ran front to back, not not at an angle mm-hmm. uh, that is a forty-five or so degree angle, which modern pianos have. Its its soundboard and its rib patterns related to each other much differently than a modern piano. The modern piano in the 1860s, it was discovered that you could orient the ribs and the soundboard in a way to develop a substantial what we call crown or curvature, right? And that allowed us to really load the soundboards, that is with the string bearing down, and that resulted in a much bigger, fatter, and bloomy sound. But uh, Erard stuck to their guns with their old design of the 1830s all the way up until past 1900. And that aesthetic was the aesthetic that actually Debussy and Ravel, and I especially emphasize Ravel, you can go to the the museum that is Ravel's home in France and see an Erard in his living room. That's, That's the sound world of Ravel. That's the sound world really of Debussy, even if we know that he loved the Bechstein and so on. Uh, maybe the next best piano to the Erard in playing Debussy's music. But uh, then that's the last of the line of period instruments. The farther you go back, the quicker the decay. And so we have a Broadwood piano in our collection from 1811, mm. donated to us by Stanford University. They gave us several instruments. Nice. And that, that wonderful instrument is to the uneducated, or you know, I was uneducated too, <laughs> it, kind of tinny sounding, Maggie. Mm. But... Once you spend a little time with it, you realize that this is the piano of those composers of the time. So that, for example, because it's small and it has a thin soundboard without the load and with thin strings that aren't made out of cast cast steel, which we call the modern wire, mm-hmm. but instead might be a combination of brass and iron, uh, this little piano, but still eight feet long, produces what I will call more anger. Mm. There's a more instantaneousness to quickly hard-played, loud-played chords, for example, which makes the famous works such as Beethoven's Pathetic Sonata, which almost everybody has heard something of, but also because you can sit down and put the right pedal down and leave it down, and it doesn't get too jumbled up, and you can have an action shift clear over to only hit one string, you can have an ethereal sound so that what we call the Moonlight Sonata, really Beethoven meant it to be more the sonata from 
the cemetery. He wanted you to have this kind of a spooky feeling. And if you hear the Moonlight Sonata played that way, it's the most astounding, astounding experience. It really is. And it, it was one of the most profound moments that I had on your tour. Um, can you just describe to our listeners um, what unicorda is and what that does to a normal, uh, not normal, but a modern day piano and why that was so effective when you played the Moonlight? Most people don't realize that pianos have multiple strings per note. And the modern piano has three strings per note, except for the bottom of the piano, the bass part of the piano. It goes from two strings per note to one string per note. But in nearly all of the antique instruments prior to, say, 1820, you'll find pianos mostly with three strings per note all the way down to the bottom. That sets the stage to, for Beethoven's idea of course, it was Beethoven who was the first composer to take advantage of this pedal because it didn't exist in pianos beforehand. Pedals didn't exist in pianos much before this time. Huh. So all of a sudden, now you have a pedal that you can exploit. And it moves the action and the hammers so that the hammers will strike only two or one string. Una corda is one string. So really, an unicorda means the action shifts clear over to one string. Now, most of Beethoven's pianos were built in Vienna and were what we call Viennese pianos, a whole other subject. But that was the center of the musical world, and they, of course, considered it to be the center of the world. Well, <laughs> in a way, in music, it was. It was. And the Viennese pianos were very important to Beethoven. We actually have no Viennese pianos yet in our collection. Huh. But we use a, important replicas of Viennese pianos for our concerts uh, it, because of the generosity of a very fine fortepianist and harpsichordist in, in Palm Springs, Charles Metz. Charlie generously loans these instruments for our use. Nice. But the Broadwood that we have in our collection, it has three strings per note, just like the Viennese, and it gets around this by doing being able to let us move the action clear over so that you're on una corda, and we can still put the pedal down and leave it open all the time, and it gives you those ethereal effects. The Viennese piano had one extra thing. They called it the moderator pedal. Today on upright pianos, we call it the practice pedal. It puts a piece of felt between the hammers and the strings. Mm. You know, since about 1830, you don't have that as a regular feature, except for in a few rare European pianos made 120 years ago. You don't have that. But putting a piece of felt between the hammers and the strings, I can sit down on an upright piano for my client, and I can play on a modern upright piano built by Yamaha or other mostly Asian builders, I can put that practice pedal down and play the first few bars of the Moonlight Sonata and say, this is really what Beethoven had in mind. Because mm, it's quieter. And it really ethereal. <laughs> Almost spooky. Yeah. Well, it's perfect for October. <laughs> perfect for October. <laughs> We've got to take a quick break, but we'll be back for more piano talk on Musically Speaking. I'm Margaret Worsley. We'll be right back. Um, I'd like to reintroduce our guest, Bill Schull. Bill restores pianos and is the president of the Period Piano Collection in Redlands. We are in the studio at KVCR where you learn something new every day. What are you learning these days, Bill? Oh, right now I'm learning how to juggle things, right? <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's tough to run all these things. And I realize that what I've learned theoretically about management in, in college my goodness, how do you apply that in the here and now? But Period Piano Center has to go from where it is, which is run by a board of piano enthusiasts, each of whom have certain roles to play, but none of whom are wealthy, mm. to a board which is co financially contributed to our mission. 
and who wants to help guide us. And we can get a lot of us onto onto committees that are committed to projects because that's really who most of us board people are mm-hmm. are people committed to projects and in accomplishing things so so I'm I wanting to learn how to achieve that and welcoming any enthusiast in management who wants to come on board and help uh, and of course we have to keep studying and learning uh, so so we do conferences um, I am in the middle of trying to learn a lot about the Kanabi piano. Mm. And the reason for that is that the American Musical Instrument Society has its convention this coming year in the South, in Memphis, Tennessee. And I just happen to be the scholar on the Kanabi piano. You might say it that way because they refer folks to me for research on their Kanabi pianos. They meaning the current owner of Kanabi, Samick Corporation. Uh, And so uh, I have done a lot of preliminary research. I have all their logbooks in my computer, just like I do Steinway up through a certain historical point. And uh, so I have already written a paper, unpublished and actually unvetted and unedited, certainly not peer-reviewed. So between now and November 1, I'm trying to get something up to the point to where I have a paper to throw into their queue for the possibility to be considered for a scholarly presentation. Well, it sounds like you've got some writing to do, Bill. And research, yes. (laughs) And research, yes. Um, Is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about the Period Piano Collection? Well, if I were to summarize what the Period Piano Collection is about, one, it's about conservation. We have 94-plus musical instruments, and nearly every one of those instruments is owned by Period Piano Collection. And our objective with these instruments is a combination of conservation and period performance. So that's a second area of Period Piano Center. Conservation is one. Period performance is another. Well, there are conflicts between conservation and period performance. Hmm. Because if you're going to bring a historical object into a museum and you want it to represent history, but you want it to represent music, sometimes it requires so much invasive restoration that it will harm the instrument as an object of history. Hmm. So our challenge is to be aware of the practices that will accomplish those two goals. Now, the name for the type of conservation that might bring a historic instrument into a place where it could be used again as a musical instrument, is restorative conservation. And knowing what that is all about is part of our job. It is a special area that results in careful repairs, but not destruction of the document as history. So the conservation, and of course, the, the, the study element we've talked about, and then education is an important part of what we do. So for 15 years, we've exhibited at the Piano Technicians Guild conventions at almost every convention and at many regional conventions so that we can educate piano technicians and maybe get them turned on to this. Also, piano technicians are our kind of field resources. Piano technicians are the ones that are running across historic instruments. And so by being involved in the trade of piano technology, by being connected all across the world now, because I'm a member of even Facebook groups of piano technicians all over the world, mm-hmm. as well as the, the, the lists that the Piano Technicians Guild sponsors. So that keeps me connected with piano technicians beyond the fact that they might attend classes that I teach at their conventions. We just finished a convention in Anaheim because our national, or we sometimes call it national, annual convention is it was in, in Anaheim. And so I taught classes there. Uh, and uh, that builds relationships with piano technicians and gives them opportunity to have a better set of skills themselves. 
and better knowledge set, better uh, able to know what to do instead of, say, telling folks to throw this piano away. Mm. It is historically valuable. This happens every day, all the time. Today, most pianos are getting thrown away if they're 60 years or older. And many of these instruments are instruments that should be looked at again and considered for history. But piano technicians are learning those things as we go out and, and work on it. And then, of course, they are my opportunity to learn about where something special is. Do we need to go to that site or do we need their their photography? You know, what, what can we learn about those instruments? So they help build that database of, of, of pianos as well. That is so wonderful. I mean, it sounds like the Internet has really opened a world and connection for you. And, That's correct. And your people. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> That's so great. So there is a difference, I guess, between historically informed performance um, versus period performance or period pianos? That's exactly right, Maggie. Let me explain. Okay. Today, when we do period performance, mm-hmm. we have two different approaches to it. And, and period performance, in, in terms of ed- academic education, mm-hmm. is happening in many universities across the country mm-hmm. as a formal program but almost not on the West Coast. It's all happening on the East Coast. Right. We do have a forte pianist at UCLA. USC does the occasional class that gives students a little exposure to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but basically, this is an East Coast event. And it's developing in, all the way up to doctoral degrees in, in period piano, in period performance. Mm-hmm. Any instrument can be a period performance instrument. Now, there are two different approaches to period performance. One we call period performance. The other, and we could, we could say PPP, period performance practice. Mm. The other is what we call HIP. Now, these are really important differences, historically informed performance or period performance. Mm. Now, what happens is, is we all want to learn about the period instrument because we want to understand the mind of the composer and, and be able to play the music the way it was actually performed and under, written even, right? Mm-hmm. But we have a problem in that these instruments are almost not anywhere. You know, there are outfits like us, and there are schools that have them, and there are a number of private collectors. But right now, if you want to get access to one, it's hard. Mm-hmm. And so we have HIP, Historically Informed Performance. To illustrate, we had the pianist who's in charge of the piano performance program at Gettysburg College in Pennsylvania. And she came and did a concert for us of all of the Chopin etudes. Wow. But she came and a couple months before and lived with the Erard piano she was going to perform on. Mm. She lived with it. And she lived with it. And then the next day, she went to the Steinway and tried to execute what she had learned from the experience on the Erard. Hmm. That's historically informed performance. To bring to the modern piano what you learned on the historical instrument. And more and more modern pianists are taking advantage of that extraordinary experience. Uh, we, we hear concerts of the, t- the finest concert pianists today who clearly are showing in their performances that they have become historically informed pianists. Wow. And then, of course, there's nothing like the experience of the piano of the time of the period. I'm just trying to um, wrap my head around how you would you would hear that in their technique. You would hear that in their phrasing. You would you would probably hear that in so many beautiful ways um, of a historically informed performance. It really is amazing what a human being can learn to do and then execute on something that's not made to do those things. Mm-hmm. But pianists are doing that. And one way of illustrating it is what we call half pedaling. 
Hmm. Half pedaling gives gives a modern piano an opportunity to have this quicker decay that must happen with the older instruments. By the way, quicker decay also means more space between notes. So there's more clarity. So it also allows you to hold a pedal down all the time on the early instruments, but you can't do that on the modern piano and you have mud. But if you half pedal, and this is a really advanced technique, and it can only happen on pianos in which the dampers are all regulated so evenly that they all lift and damp at the same time, which is a bit, big headache for piano technicians like myself. <laughs> but that's what, that the reward is. Mm -hmm. a, a great pianist will be able to recreate through historically informed performance. Oh, neat. That is so cool. Um, we typically do a short set of rapid-fire questions if uh -oh. you're up for it. Uh -oh. um, so just in a word or two, who inspires you, musician or non? Oh, um, well, both Catherine and I are inspired by the great themes of life and society. We see ourselves in this broader world. So, we, you know, we can't help but to, to, to watch CNN and MSNBC every day. And, and you know, these are the things that capture us. Uh, and, of course, on the radio, I'm always tuned to KVCR. <laughs> I mean, anywhere I go, every once in a while I want a little bit of broad Southland news, so I'll go over to, uh, um, to what I guess it's called KNX now. But uh, um, I, I love the engagement with our world and with society. I care a lot about our local San Bernardino issues. Uh, I, I, Catherine and I both believe that uh, social justice is important. That actually sets us up for some conflicts because, frankly, our field of study is a kind of a Eurocentric, white kind of mm. thing. Mm -hmm. we, we want to be evangelists to all cultures for what we do, but we're also interested in the interconnections. Absolutely. And, and so every opportunity is a great opportunity, even though, for example, the barrel piano that we have in our collection is Spanish. And, and folks from Mexico may not be as excited about it as they might be about their indigenous music or, you know, of course, a lot of their music came from Europe, too. We love those, those connections, those interfaces. The barrel piano is not a piano with keys. It's a piano that you crank, and it has a drum that has pins on it like a music box, but it's much, much larger than a music box. It's a, otherwise a real piano. And it's loaded with, we could say loaded with, that is, 10 songs. It's from Barcelona, Spain, and it has 10 Spanish folk songs from the 19th century. Uh, so we've been visited by families who, whose children know those folk songs and will dance to the songs while we're cranking the piano. Oh, my gosh. You know, but, but the cultural interfaces are real important to us. Mm, that, is, that is inspiring. Um, who do you listen to when you're driving? Oh, well, I used to always listen to strictly classic, classical music mm -hmm. in my early days, uh, combining that with, say, KABC's, KABC's Michael Jackson. And if you know who Michael Jackson is, you're old like me. <laughs> um, but, uh, but today, my radio is always set to KBCR. Nice. Good answer. Um, for our friends who don't necessarily listen to a whole lot of classical piano music but are interested in getting into it, where do you think would be a good place to start? Well, of course, we've we've been fans of the Redlands Bowl, so uh, and we love the fact that KVCR collaborates by doing the recordings, you know, the video recordings and broadcasting performances. I've I've worked with the Redlands Bowl since about oh the mid '80s anyway as their piano technician, mm. and and I'm enthusiastic about what they're doing there. I I encourage anyone to who doesn't have any real familiarity with classical music just to get one of the great books on classical music and read it. Rather than trying to dive into historical performance like I have, first make the discoveries 
Uh, and the best books are written by Aaron Copeland, uh, What to Listen for in Music. I still think that's maybe the best introduction to classical music. Mm-hmm. And, and then to listen to the music. And the thing about classical music is that you need to listen to it in as good a quality m- means as you can. Uh, we all listen to everything through our cell phones or through our computers. And frequently we sacrifice ourselves by listening to the <laughs> poor speaker in our computers. Many of, many of our listeners will listen through headphones mm-hmm. uh, or through a better set of alternate speakers. That's the way to listen to classical music. So if you can listen to the introductory repertoire that say Aaron Copeland talks about, mm-hmm. that's the best way to get started. But branch out right away. Uh, listen to the period stuff. Begin to appreciate that every piano from the period of time in the past had composers that heard that piano, that that piano was their sound world. Mm. And their art was was best expressed, as we kind of talked about it with Beethoven and the unusual relationship he had with the pianos of his time. Every single period is different. So Schubert's pianos, uh, Liszt and Chopin's pianos. You get through to Brahms, and you heard Brahms on our Boisendorfer from his time, mm-hmm. and all the way up to hearing Debussy on a period instrument and Ravel. Um, these are extraordinary experiences. Now, that doesn't mean you can't screw around with all of this. When Danny Holt came and performed for us, uh-huh. he played Philip Glass on a period piano. Neat. That must have been just so cool. And that's the neat thing about this, is the exploration, the creative exploration that can take place. And we hope that something will draw you in to discovering the extraordinary experience of music and and also of of music on period instruments. Uh, I was going to say context is everything, but to imagine... um Philip Glass being played on a period piano just sounds so cool. I think Glass would like that. I think so, too. Um, Okay, what's your favorite thing to cook? Oh, my favorite thing to cook. Well, I grew up in a Seventh-day Adventist vegetarian family, and Catherine didn't. Mm -hmm. And so we're always having, you know, the fun interactions. And her son lives in our house, too. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you know, I'm the only vegetarian. So there's always this ongoing fun dynamic. (laughs) Catherine just learned how to cook one of my favorite dishes, which which is a— a dish that uh, is meat-like. It's a kind of meatloaf dish, mm. which we call Special K loaf. <laughs> uh, and my son is now an expert at it, too. Nice. You know, the piano tuner in Portland at 40, 42 years old, 41 years old, who uh, who is an expert on Special K loaf. But uh, that's that's basic, you know, um, uh, basic, basic eating. And uh, I love it. Very yeah. good. But I'm a vegetarian, lacto-ovo. And uh, and I'm always pursuing what great food is. Uh, you know, I have this crazy idea that if we, if we all were vegetarian, we, we wouldn't be consuming uh, as much of the Earth's resources and we wouldn't have hunger. Mm-hmm. And the cool thing about that is, is that if we did that, uh, the resource, only one-eighth of the resources would be used for food as they're being used right now. There's that conservation again, yep. restorative conservation. And they say that you, you know, studies are showing you live longer, too. So it's worth thinking about. We can about. hope, yes. Yeah. Um, this may be a long shot. It's the last question. But do you have a favorite rock band or hip-hop group? I grew up averse to pop music. Oh. It's my bane. <laughs> Catherine didn't. You know, she's always educating me. I, you know, Hal Solonen could do all the stuff he did as our as our past conductor of the LA Philharmonic, and then we go and put on the latest, um, you know, edgiest rock music. <laughs> you know, I never connected with that. Yeah. But uh, you know, I have to admit that uh, 
Uh, some of the TV programs that nurtured and developed uh, popular artists, I kind of got hooked on that, and that helped develop me, my appreciation. So I'm not completely clueless, but I'm mostly clueless. <laughs> I do really live in, in the world of, of what we call classical music. And that's a beautiful thing. Thank you. <laughs> Bill Scholl, it's been a delight. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today on Musically Speaking. You're welcome, Maggie. To learn more about the Period Piano Collection or to set up a tour, you can visit their website at periodpiano.org. And before we go, here are a few upcoming local performances happening in the Inland Empire. First up in the community orchestra scene, we have the Claremont Symphony performing on Sunday, November 27th at 3.30 p.m. at Bridges Hall on the campus of Pomona College. The concert will feature conductor Ruth Charloff and Tina Ku on violin, performing various works including the Bruch Violin Concerto and Copland's The Promise of Living from the Tenderland. As we move into the holiday season of concerts, the Redlands Symphony will be performing Nutcracker the Concert on Saturday, December 10th at 8 p.m. in Memorial Chapel on the campus of University of Redlands. A week later, with much anticipation, the San Bernardino Symphony Orchestra will be performing Cirque de la Noelle on Saturday, December 17th at 7.30 p.m. at the beautiful and historic California Theater in downtown San Bernardino. Bring the entire family and experience a captivating evening of acrobats, aerialists, contortionists, jugglers, and strongmen as they entertain audience members in tandem with a live symphony orchestra. The Riverside Philharmonic just had an October concert, so their next performance isn't until February 25th at 7.30 p.m. The title of the program is With Mirth and Laughter, featuring the music of Beethoven, Villalobos, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, and Mozart. That's all for now. You can find links to the San Bernardino Symphony, Redland Symphony, Riverside Philharmonic, and Claremont Symphony on our Musically Speaking webpage at kvcrnews.org forward slash musically speaking. Thanks for joining me for this month's show. You can listen to Musically Speaking on streaming platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. We'll include the link to Bill Scholl's Period Piano Collection website when we post this program to our website on kvcrnews.org forward slash Musically Speaking. Musically Speaking is a production of KVCR, run by program manager Rick Dulock, with assistance from Natasha Coles in social media support, our webmaster Sean Houlihan, and student intern assistant Jackson Tivy. I do hope you'll join us next month on the fourth Saturday and following Monday for our next episode of Musically Speaking. I'm Margaret Worsley. Thanks for listening.